Hello and welcome to the second season of the Page to Pixel podcast. I am your host, Reed Jolin, and join with me, as always, is my dear boy, all the way up north, Jeremy Ruck. How you doing, buddy? Hey, what's up, man? It has been a spell, huh? It has. Uh, I know we've both been kind of busy with our own things. I'm, you know, f- just finishing up teaching this week, so it's it's nice to be able to kind of jump back into things. I mean, this this really started as like, like a summer idea that we had last year. I don't think we really realized the amount of work that kind of went into this sort of thing. Um, I, I still love doing it, and I hope you do too. So um, that's half the battle, though, right? That is. It's uh almost like we had if we could have something to kind of control time or or make it so we had more time in the day to do this thing we could get more episodes out more frequently does that also involve ben kingsley uh all of my dreams involve ben kingsley uh i think what jeremy was um leading to is the uh focus of this episode which of course is the prince of persia games namely the uh, prince of persia sands of time quadrilogy most people kind of refer to it as a trilogy but in fact um according to i guess canon i don't know if there's any like canon theorists or people that study this specifically but there are actually four games within the sands of time uh universe so that's what we're going to be focusing on today in particular um we're going to start with Prince of Persia uh, Sands of Time, which came out in 2003. And then we are going to jump into um, Forgotten Sands, which actually came out quite a bit later after Sands of Time, actually much later than the other games. Uh, Forgotten Sands came out in May of 2010. Um, and then Warrior Within, which is the amazing edgy version of the series, came out in November of 2004. And then Two Thrones, which was the original ending of the trilogy, uh, came out in December of 2005. So... I was just kind of looking up this series when we started researching it, and I didn't realize that these games came out like literally a year after each other. Like that's actually pretty impressive. Yeah, they got pumped out pretty quickly, and there was a few like I think kind of shortcuts they had went in development just due to the fact that they got pumped out so quickly. Yeah, a lot of the the videos and articles that I read about this is that this game was it it, it kind of caught fire pretty quickly. I think a lot of people still revere the Sands of Time, the original one, in this this newer ish series to be the best of the bunch um and then kind of after that they they realized that they had a hit on their hands and they just kind of ran with it and that's why we got you know um warrior within and then two thrones right kind of after each other which is even by 2004 2005 standards that's pretty dang quick um I mean, typically with a lot of games, especially nowadays, it takes a really long time to develop and budgets are way, way so much higher. And uh, it's just pretty impressive, I think, to even even with the shortcuts, these are all pretty quality games. So we'll kind of jump into that. But before we do that, uh, let's talk a little bit about our experiences with this series in general. So, Jeremy, I'll let you I think this was I don't know if this was your idea to do this series or kind of like we kind of we. Let's kind of, yeah, that's kind of what we do, ladies and gentlemen. Like when we're looking at um, new episodes, it kind of started off as, you know, I would pick something and then Jeremy would pick something. And now it's more of a cohesive agreement on something because, you know, I don't want Jeremy to be bored by something I picked and vice versa. So we like to kind of keep it into the realms of things that we played for the most part. Um, But there's been a few exceptions like Blood uh, Bloodstained and stuff like that. Or uh, what was it? The um, the Outer Wilds, Outer Worlds that I hadn't really played. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so it's it, it's cool for me to experience that, and of course Jeremy's talked about his new love for Bloodstained, so it, it is cool to kind of do that. But largely, when we're choosing new episodes, we kind of do it on a consensus basis. But anyway, I'll let you get started with your own experiences with um, this series. Uh, so I played all three of the original ones back when they released. Uh, I, I think I have Forgotten Sands in my Steam library, and it just sits there forgotten in the sands of my Steam library. Mm-hmm. Uh, I loved them instantly. Uh, I think I ended up playing Warrior Within the most because I was edgy at that point in my life. It's not a phase, Mom. It's it's not a phase. It's my life. Yeah, I I was I remember being really kind of awed by the acrobatic combat and the kind of parkour running that the game would kind of be known for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think with this game, it's um, the series, it's largely, it is an action platformer, but I'd say after kind of reviewing everything, it really does more fit as a platformer more so than an action game because the action combat in a lot of these games is not like its selling point. Wouldn't you say? No, yeah, it's 
And honestly, going back and replaying the, at least the first ones, its merits as a platformer are kind of rough, though. The, the camera angles do not do a lot to lend you to good platforming. Um, would I you say... Games, would, I think the game still holds up pretty good, but like, I think it's just a little bit of everything between action, platforming, and, and like puzzle solving. But you can definitely see the DNA um, from this game and other games that kind of came out after the fact. And I think that's one of the reasons why people still revere it so highly, especially the first the first one, Sands of Time. So it is interesting to see how, while these games aren't necessarily like hold up well as something like, I don't know. I'm trying to think of like a, what is like a, I don't know, early 2000s game that in your opinion really holds up really well, even right now. Yeah, I think we're- Pirates. Yeah, that one does. I mean, even that, I was just recently playing that again, too, because it is Pirate Summer, ladies and gentlemen. But yeah, I was. that's one of those games that I can always go back to time and time again. But a lot of people like to say something like Grand Theft Auto Vice City or San Andreas. But like, if you go back and play those today, they're a little janky. Yeah, um, there's always th- some jank in any older game, though. Yeah, and I think the um, generations past 8 and 16-bit really kind of suffer from... Um, the inability, I guess, to differentiate between like really good graphics and like you know it's supposed to be lower end graphics. Like if you play like Mario World in 2022, it still looks good because it's you know it is what it is. But if you go back and play a lot of N64 games because it's trying to be advanced, you automatically try to compare it against modern stuff and it just doesn't work. You know what I mean? I agree. Yeah, that's fair. <clears throat> Yeah, my experiences with these games, um, I don't think I owned any of them when they came out. I remember, I think I own Sands of Time now because I've been, I'm a retro collector, so I kind of collect these. Um, I, I've played all of them, I think, decently enough. Um, the, my f- actual favorite is one that we're not talking about today, and that is the 2008 reboot. I don't know what it is. I just really liked that one. I did like the art style a lot. Um, That's like... Like the fan base hates that game. Which yeah, is which is, which is, yeah, it is exactly. It is strange that I like that one a lot. Um, I remember, you know, renting these games a lot and playing through, I don't know, probably half of them. They're not super long games. Um, I remember like going into my friend's house during high school and watching them play like Two Thrones and stuff like that. Um, I remember like distinctly one of them getting really stuck on a boss, which is interesting because these games aren't really known for their bosses. It is really that platforming element but i've always you know i've always when i think of the mid 2000s like solid games i think of these um so just briefly looking at the medic uh metacritic rating of all these games and again i'm kind of like a lukewarm person on metacritic because i don't think it always is a true testament to how good or bad something is but i think the ratings for these is pretty fair when i kind of boil it all down so looking at sands of time which again came out november of 2003 um, that had a Metacritic of 92 out of 100, which is really, really high. That is good. Yep. And then Warrior Within, which came out a year later, got a 82, which is still really good. Um, and then Two Thrones, which came out again December of 2005, got an 85. So all of the the sequels after the original Sands of Time got pretty solid reviews. And then Forgotten Sands, which came out um, five years after uh, Two Thrones, got a 75. So you can sort of see there's this mild decrease in the quality of these games, which, as Jeremy said, was largely related to budget and interest, which we'll kind of talk about a little bit. Anything else you want to talk about before we jump into the um, maybe some brief origins of this series? Uh, Yeah, I remember why I never played Forgotten Sands, because I have to have a Ubisoft account and I refuse to make one. Yeah, I remember when that game came out because I uh, i don't know if I mentioned this before, but I worked at a mom and pop game retailer for a couple of years. And um, I remember getting that game in to sell and we opened the package and we're like, there's another Prince of Persia game? Like, I thought this series was done. And I'm really guessing that's the feeling a lot of people had unless you were a diehard person. Um, so, yeah, uh, Forgotten Sands was, as you said, pretty forgotten. So, got him. So, looking at the origins of this series, um, obviously, um, the uh, Prince of Persia: Sands of Time was not the first game in this series. There was actually three before um, beforehand. The, uh, the series dates back to the mid '80s, late late '80s. Um, there was a developer from Yale University named Jordan Mechner, and he developed. He wanted to create um, a platformer. And Jeremy and I were kind of talking a little bit about before we started recording and how he wanted it to be very platform-based with less emphasis on action, 
Um, and he used this technology called rotoscoping where it's essentially filming live human beings and kind of transfiguring that action onto a video game. And if you actually look back at some of the old Prince of Persia footage for, I don't know if it was like Apple II, it was on a lot of platforms, but if you actually look at some of the, the, the actions and movement of the characters in those games, it's actually pretty impressive. It actually still holds up pretty well. Like the movements compared to a lot of things in the late very 80s was smooth. very, very smooth. Yeah, it doesn't have like the kind of jank that a, a sprite does. Mm-hmm. Looking at themes and inspiration for this whole series as a whole, I know it's usually kind of one of the major emphases we take when we talk about a series, but one of the major influences um, for this series was largely Middle Eastern mythology, legends. Um, particularly, uh, Mechner had stated before that he grew up um, listening to tales of uh, the Arabian Nights or 101 Nights, whatever you want to call it. So he was always kind of mesmerized by a lot of that Arabic folklore, which I, I, I also agree I think is really cool. And he also was uh, largely influenced by the Indiana Jones movies, which makes total sense when you kind of put two and two together. It is really kind of an interesting combination of both of those things. And I can't really think, I mean, I don't know if you, you have any insight, Jeremy, but can you really think of any other gaming series that takes place in like Persia or the Middle East? That's in a positive way, in a positive way. <laughs> no, um, uh, Aladdin on the NES. Yeah. Or, or the SNES or Genesis, you mean? Fingers up my glasses. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yes. yes. Um, yeah, the the um, yeah, the yeah Aladdin game, which I did love. But yeah, I mean, with, with the exception oh, yeah, of... There's not a lot that takes place in that era. No, area. Yeah, I mean, it's... It'd be kind of cool to do like a, a mini podcast about like games from each continent or like territory. That'd be kind of cool. That take place. I don't know. That's something to think about. Chew on for the future. But uh, yeah, Mechner um, decided to. I think he was filming his brother when he, they were doing the original action scenes for like the first nice. game. Yep. And they created um, Prince of Persia. Uh, came out I think in 1989. Not too long after that, uh, Prince of Persia 2. And then in the late 90s, they created Prince of Persia 3D, which was from all accounts. I didn't really look too much into it because it's not a part of this podcast. But it was largely a Tomb Raider ripoff, is what a lot of people said. Um, and then the license kind of dropped, and it was bought and acquired by Ubisoft. Do you have any other additional information I missed? Uh, so one thing I thought was interesting was originally when he made the game, he didn't want there to be any sort of combat at all. And he was eventually convinced to put, put a, an enemy in, and that's where the Dark Prince spawned. So the players basically have to run through the, the dungeon, if you will. They go through a mirror, and then a dark prince spawns, and that kind of becomes the antagonist. And I believe the reason there was so much pushback was because the rotoscoping took up too much memory, and they didn't want to. They, they didn't have the capacity to put a bunch of different characters with different designs into the game. So they basically just made the prince a negative of what he was, so they could actually fit an enemy into the game. That's pretty clever. Yeah, which again, like we probably talked about a hundred times already, just how limiting those early game systems were with with data. Yeah, and like it's really ingenious. A lot of the workarounds they're able to achieve back in the day. Anyway, so that being said, that's kind of just like the background, the origins, the sort of inspiration for why they created these games. And then, like I said, um, I don't know when the license lapsed, um, but it was acquired by Ubisoft. And they eventually created the Sands of Time, which is the focus of our first kind of segment where we're going to talk a bit about the characters and the plot of each game. So with further ado, I'll let Jeremy tell us a little bit about the Sands of Time. King Sharaman, the prince and a company of men are traveling from Persia to visit Azad. When passing through India, they meet the vizier, the advisor of the Maharaja. King Sharman is convinced to attack the Maharaja's kingdom with a promise of glory and honor. With the aid of the vizier, King Sharman's army storms the city, overhearing a conversation between Shar between Sharman and the vizier. The prince learns of the treasure vault hidden within the city. The prince rides off to the palace, eager to prove himself to his father, and he is thrown from his horse through the palace entrance as debris falls, separating the prince from his father's men. 
The prince awakens to the city still under siege and hunts for the treasure vault encountering enemy soldiers and deadly terrain. When the prince discovers the treasure vault, his attention is drawn to a massive glowing hourglass and a dagger. When he picks up the dagger, he's almost killed by falling debris, but is saved by the dagger, discovering it has an ability to control time. The prince rejoins his father, who has taken the hourglass as a prize for the Sultan of Azad. The vizier demands the dagger as his reward, as he was promised choice of the Maharaja's treasure. Though Sharman refuses, the company then departs to Azad, laden with treasure and prisoners, including the Maharaja's daughter, Farah. They arrive in Azad and present the spoils to the Sultan as tribute to strengthen their alliance. The vizier tricks the prince into stabbing the hourglass with his dagger, releasing the sands of time. With the sands free, the vizier uses the power to transform everyone in the room except the prince himself and Farah into sand creatures. The vizier again demands the dagger from the prince to undo the curse, but the prince escapes as falling debris blocks the vizier from pursuing him. The prince pursues Farah through the castle ruins until the pair witness two sandbirds carrying the hourglass to the Tower of Dawn. The pair form a tentative alliance to defeat the vizier as the prince has deduced the vizier was responsible for the catastrophe. The pair fight their way through the Tower of Dawn, slowly becoming more friendly along the way. Farah teaches the prince how to recapture the sands in the hourglass, but when the prince attempts it, he hesitates, allowing the vizier to thwart his attempt to capture the sands. The vizier attacks the vizier attacks forces the prince to choose whether to save Farah or keep the dagger. The prince chooses to save Farah but is luckily able to snatch the dagger from the vizier before falling into the catacombs below the city. In the dark tombs, Farah seduces the prince, stealing his dagger to attempt to seal the sands herself. He pursues her back to the tower and catches up to her while she's being attacked by uh, more sand creatures. Farah is knocked over a ledge above the hourglass, but the prince is able to catch her by the blade of the dagger, preventing her from falling. As enemies approach, Farah realizes the prince will not let go, so she chooses to herself let go of the dagger, falling to her death. After defeating the sand creatures, the prince realizes too much time has passed and he cannot not rewind time and save Farah. The prince goes to mourn Farah as the vizier approaches, attempting to convince the prince to give him the dagger, but he again refuses. Enraged, the prince uses the dagger and triggers a grand rewind. Returning the sands to the hourglass, the timeline reverts to the point prior to the attack of the Maharaja's palace. The prince goes to Farah's bedroom. Startled awake by the prince, he reveals he is in possession of the dagger and tells her the story of the vizier's treachery, retelling what had happened in the undone timeline. As the prince reaches the end of the story, the vizier appears, intent on killing Farah and blaming the prince for her death. The prince defeats the vizier and offers the dagger back to Farah. And that's about it. There's a lot more in that story that goes on between the relationship between the two of them, where they kind of fall in love, but that's all. Yeah, and kind as... Tid tidbits you can go back and replay the game for. Yeah, and as you're kind of telling me, I'm just thinking of the um, the movie that we're going to talk <laughs> about uh, in just a little while. Yes, we did, as a part of our in-depth research to, to please all of you, we did watch the uh, 20, 2009, 2010, 2010 movie. Yeah, 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 good times. So we'll talk about that at the end of the podcast. Yeah, uh, Sands of Time, it's, it's a pretty good game. Again, whenever you have games that have time manipulation, things can get a little off-rails. And that's kind of the issue that you're going to see with the segue between this game and the other ones. Because like I said at the beginning of the episode, um, this is the first in the series. And originally what came right after this was Warrior Within and then Two Thrones. But of course, years after, um, there was The Forgotten Sands, which I can talk about right now if we're ready. Yeah, I think we're good to go. All right, cool. Let me get this pulled up here. So let me tell you a little bit about the plot of Forgotten Sands. So the prince is riding through a desert on his horse on a quest to see his brother Malik and learn about leadership from him. When the prince arrives at Malik's kingdom, he finds it under attack by an army which is attempting to breach the treasure vaults for a great power known as Solomon's army. The prince charges into the city and tracks Malik to the treasure vaults. Here, Malik says that he is fighting a losing battle and proposes to rely on a last resort or be forced to retreat. 
The prince strongly objects, but Malik releases Solomon's army using a magical seal. Solomon's army is an assortment of different creatures, all made of sand. The prince and Malik both manage to obtain halves of the seal used to keep the army contained, protecting them from being turned into sand statues, which is the fate of the rest of the kingdom. Malik is separated from the prince, who finds a portal to the domain of Razia, a jinn of the Marid race. Razia tells Prince that the only way to re-imprison Solomon's army is to reunite both halves of the seal. Razia gives the Prince special powers and sends him to find Malik and the other half of the seal. When the Prince finds Malik, he is not interested in stopping Solomon's army, but instead wants to destroy it and use its power to become a more powerful leader. This is explained by Razia, whereas the Prince is using the power gifted to him by Razia. Malik is using his power taken directly from those he defeats. The army's sand is gradually affecting his mind, making him susceptible to Ratasha's influence, who is a villain in this game. The prince again sets out to find Malik, but this time to forcibly take his half of the seal. When he finds him, Malik is stronger and manages to escape. Pursuing Malik again, the prince finds Ratash, Ifrit leader of the army, searching for the seal. After the prince outruns him, he concludes Ratash must now be chasing Malik and sets out to aid him. The prince arrives in the throne room to find Malik and Ratash fighting, and he aids Malik. The prince and Malik seem to kill Ratash, and Malik absorbs his power, shattering his half of the seal. Malik then runs off, seemingly in a hysterical fit, using some of Ratash's power to escape. The prince pursues him, and again finds Razia. Razia explains that Ratash cannot be killed by any ordinary sword, for he is no man, and that what actually happened was quite different from what the prince saw. Ratash has actually killed Malik and possessed his body. Shocker. The prince doesn't believe this and sets out to find the Jin sword, hidden in the ancient city of Rakem, which Razia says can kill Ratash. Along the way, the prince chases Malik, now being used by Ratash to retake the Ifrit's original form. The prince loses a battle to Ratash, and convincing his brother is truly dead, finds the Jin sword. Razia soon bonds with the sword, giving it the power needed to destroy Ratash. The prince again searches for Ratash. When he finds him, Ratash is now gigantic, literally fed by the sandstorm which has overcome the palace. The prince uses the sword to kill Ratash, and when the sandstorm subsides, he finds Malik dying. Malik says to tell their father that the prince will be a mighty leader as Solomon, then dies. In an epilogue, the prince tells of how he took the sword back to Rakem, where he fought, uh, where he thought Razia would want to rest, and now he must set out to inform his father of Malik's death. So there, ladies and gentlemen, is the plot of Forgotten Sands. So what's interesting about um, this game is that they used the game engine that would eventually kind of kill off the franchise, and that's the Assassin's Creed engine. The original three games um, were using the Jade engine, which is from the game Beyond Good and Evil, another Ubisoft franchise. Um, but this time around, they kind of changed up the style of the game a little bit there's still obviously the platforming and there's a lot of new powers like i know in forgotten sands he has the ability to kind of like freeze water in midair and so you can use it as like a bouncing point a leverage point um and the combat did change a bit but i think people were largely um lukewarm on this game i feel like it kind of came out too late and it was largely a response and tie-in to the movie even though it wasn't necessarily based on the movie that came out with Jake Gyllenhaal and Ben Kingsley. But the character in the game looks somewhat like uh, Jake Gyllenhaal in the movie. So it's kind of this weird thing where they're not rebooting the franchise. They're continuing it about five years after the last game in the series had come out. But it's not a continuation of those three games. It is a sequel to the first one. So it's kind of a strange thing, and I think a lot of fans were largely a little confused on it, like I was. Um, so what if, what if there's two different timelines, and Warrior Within and Two Thrones exist on a different timeline, and this one exists on another timeline? I think that's the. I think that's the point. I think that's God, essentially. So I, I think that's essentially what they did with these games. They said, "Oh, the events of Warrior Within or Two Thrones never happened yet." we're going to segue this into the beginning of uh, the, the middle of the franchise. I just think sure. it's a weird, I can't think of another game series or movie series, like sure with like star Wars, for example, you have the prequels and sequels, but you don't really have, well, I guess you have like rogue one jumping in between, but that's, right. that's a little bit well, more discernible. What I find interesting about this one in particular is uh, all three of the other games are directly related to the sands of time mm -hmm. where this one's just kind of like, He's off just making pancakes in the side room. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like the next one, he's being chased by that creature, and the other one, the sands are still in it. And right. it just seems interesting that this one's just kind of like a, it's like a 1.5. Yeah, it's a good way of putting it. It is 1.5. Um, it looks pretty good. Like, I was watching some gameplay footage of it, because, again, I've never played it, but it, it looked pretty good for the time. Uh, I just think it's a weird choice to kind of come out with this game. Um, it didn't sell very well, from what I understand. It is largely, like we said before, a very forgotten piece of this franchise. So if we're kind of putting an asterisk next to that game, we can move on to the the next game in the original trilogy, which is uh, Warrior Within. So do you want to take Warrior Within, Jeremy? Yes, put on your black t-shirts. This one gets a little edgy. Yeah, we've been listening to a lot of Godsmack and looking at Godsmack tattoos online, so I hope you're happy with that. Here we go. I'm always happy about Godsmack. Seven years after the events of The Sands of Time, the prince finds himself constantly hunted by a mysterious creature known as the Dahaka. He seeks counsel from an old wise man who explains that whoever releases The Sands of Time must die. Because the prince escaped his fate, it is the Dahaka's mission as guardian of the timeline to ensure that he dies as he was meant to. The old man also tells of the island of time, where the empress of time first created the sands. The prince sets sail for the island in an attempt to prevent the sands from ever being created, an act he believes will appease the Dahaka. After a battle at sea with an enemy force led by a mysterious woman in black capsizes the prince's ship, the prince washes ashore unconscious onto the island of time. Do you remember that uh, mysterious black woman in the, in the previews? He later awakens and chases the woman in black through the empress... He later awakens and chases the woman in black through the empress of time's fortress into a portal that trans- transports the two into the past. The prince saves a woman named Kalina from being killed by the woman in black, who later happens to be known as Shahid. Unable to grant the prince an audience with the Empress of Time, who is busy preparing to create the sands, Kalina instead tells him how to unlock the door to the throne room in which the Empress resides. The prince makes his way through the fortress, using the sand portals to travel back and forth between the past and present, and narrowly escapes several encounters with the Dahaka who he discovers is unable to pass through water. The prince activates the mechanisms in two towers of the fortress, the guardian tower and the mechanical tower, that serve as locks to the door. He returns to the throne room only to discover that Kalina is actually the Empress of Time herself, who has foreseen in the timeline that the prince will kill her and decided to try to defy her fate just as the prince is doing. A battle ensues and the prince proves victorious, he kills Kalina and returns to the present. He believes that he has changed his fate, but another encounter with the Dahaka forces him to realize that in killing Kalina, he was in essence the one who created the Sands of Time. As the Sands were created from her remains, and they flow into the hourglass. The prince, Paul, the prince falls into despair, but then finds a glimmer of hope upon learning of a magical artifact called the Mask of the Wraith which is said to transport the wearer into the past, also allowing the wearer to alter his own timeline by safely coexisting with his other self. The prince wastes no time in seeking out and donning the mask, which transforms him into the Sand Wraith, an entity that constantly ebbs away life and sends him back to the point when he first arrived in the island of time. He formulates a plan to force Kalina through a sand portal with him, transporting both of them into the present, believing that if he kills her then, the Sands of Time will be created seven years after the events of the Sand of Time, meaning that it will be impossible for the prince to release them in Azad. While still in the past, the prince, as the Sand Wraith, ensures that the Dahaka apprehends and destroys his other self, who has just finished unlocking the door to the throne room, leaving the Sandwraith the only prince in that timeline. This act loosens the mask of the Wraith's grip from the prince's face, allowing him to remove it and return to his normal form. The prince continues to the throne room, and despite his pleas to Kalina, a battle with her begins as before. So, this game does have two possible endings, um, where the prince basically finds extra gear and it dictates whether or not he gets a good ending or a bad ending so 
If the prince has not found the water sword, he kills Kleena in the present, and the Dahaka arrives to claim her body as well as Farah's amulet from the prince, so that the sands of time and all relics pertaining to it are removed from the timeline. The prince sails home to Babylon alone, only to discover that the city is being ravaged by war. The old wise man is heard in his voice is heard in his head, once again stating, Your journey will not end well. You cannot change your fate, no man can. Then the prince speaks out in utter dismay, what have I done? If the prince found the water sword just before his battle with Kalina begins, the Dahaka appears to try to remove the latter from the timeline. The prince moves to save her and realizes that the water sword can damage the seemingly invincible Dahaka. After fighting and defeating the beast, the prince and Kalina sail to the former's home of Babylon together. During the journey, they apparently end up making love to each other, and the prince dreams of a burning Babylon with a gold crown rolling to the feet of a mysterious shadowy figure that ominously claims, All that is yours is rightfully mine, and all and mine it will be. As in the first ending, the old wise man's voice is heard stating, Your journey will not end well. You cannot change your fate, no man can. And this is the canonical ending to the two, uh, leading to the two thrones. The the bad ending is the canonical one? They're both not great. Oh, I didn't know that. So hmm. the only real difference in them is uh, that um, Kalina's alive. Oh, I see. And is this the only one that's rated M? For massively underrated. <laughs> mature sir i mean the the thong lady um it's just oh, like oh man yeah that that was definitely that ad was definitely what sold me this game i mean that's what i distinctly remember is like having this up in my room and like my sister my younger sister watching me fight thong lady <laughs> like it's just like <laughs> well, i don't I, I forgot kind of the story because honestly like it was a lot of just running around and back then i didn't really pay attention to a lot of the story but I kind of broke up a little bit there, there while reading that because of how it just convoluted all the time bullshit is. Oh, I know. Like, I'm listening to you talk and I'm like, man, like, you think these are pretty simple games. Like, that's what we're realizing, ladies and gentlemen, is it's like you take a simple game or seemingly simple game and you kind of break down the plot points. It's like, dang, there's like they're getting a little ahead of themselves with some of these well, plot points. As soon as you introduce time into anything and just like going to the past to save your future self from your past self just like stuff like that just gets very convoluted yeah for sure i mean this game i think is a pretty good one i know a lot of people think it's their favorite because they like the the godsmack u.s navy commercials <laughs> that we were <laughs> that we were watching before this and um you know it is like I, I was watching a video um kind of as a review on the franchise and they said that this is the series hitting puberty and um yeah that's really what it is that's, yeah, that's exactly what Pimples and anger issues and all. Axe body spray. Um, um, so one thing I do remember from watching a documentary, uh, uh, the original creator, what was his name again, Reed? Because I uh, can't remember names. Oh, was it Jordan Mechner? Yeah, Jordan Mechner. So he did have some influence in the Sands of Time game being made, just creatively. Mm -hmm. And I do know that there was a little contention because he did not, like, did not like the darker tone and angstier tone that this game had. Right. Um, but I think this game probably just fell victim to it being, when did this come out, 2003? Oh, 2004. Yeah, it fell victim to being early 2000s. Yes, and every video game needed the sort of, like, angsty, um, protagonist kind of being aggressive and violent. Like, almost, I would say half of the games we've talked about so far have had an angsty teen phase. Maybe we're, we've never kind of left surfaced it? out of, yeah, we never left ours. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's a good point now that you mention it. I mean, Max Payne, he's an adult, but he's still really angsty. He's still an um, angsty teen. Uh, Condemned had the angsty well, game. Oh, yeah, for sure, for sure. They had, like, the, the rap battle. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot of what we talk about, there are a lot of angsty characters in it. Well, I, guess, we'll... I guess we kind of really were playing a lot of games in 2004, and if being angsty was popular in 2004, we'll probably t talk about that a lot. Yeah, I mean, the, these games that we're picking are largely representative of our own childhood and early life experiences yeah obviously some you know modern stuff but i mean a lot of this stuff is largely influential to the games we like and even though we can kind of look back at this game and say yeah this is pretty pretty cheesy in retrospect we still like back in the day we're like hell yeah let's do this bro oh yeah i mean I, it, it's cheesy but i still think it's neat like mm -hmm. i still think it's cool like 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's fine. I think the combat was good. Um, but mm. yeah, the dark tone, I think, is is interesting. It, it was... And we'll, we'll talk about uh, Two Thrones next. Um, and kind of how they take the best of both worlds and kind of combine it. Um, what I've seen... I haven't played a lot of Two Thrones, which we'll talk about in a second. But from what I understand of people's reviews on it, it is a very good game. And some people think it is the best in the series. But it doesn't have like the acclaim or uh, heritage, I guess you could say, of Sands of Time. But uh, we'll talk about that a little bit more as we kind of move through it. Do you have anything else you were going to say, Jeremy? Uh, so I think I can finish. No, I, we can wrap up with some of the storytelling aspects of the games and stuff that I appreciated after Two Thrones. So. Okay, sure. That sounds good. So let's jump into Two Thrones, which again came out 2005. So again, one year after each other. So here is the plot of Two Thrones. So this game is set after the events of Prince of Persia, Warrior Within, in which the prince kills the Daka and saves Kalina and prevents the Sands of Time from being created. Unlike the previous games, the story is narrated by Kalina. The prince's actions alter the timeline of events that took place before that point. In the original timeline, the vizier and the Maharaja traveled to the Island of Time and found an hourglass filled with the Sands of Time. In the modified timeline, they find the hourglass empty. Since the vizier never released the Sands of Time and fought the prince, he is still alive at the beginning of this game. Farah, who helped the prince during the events of Sands of Time, has never met the prince. As the prince and Kalina return to the city of Babylon, like the ending of The uh, Warrior Within, they find it being ravaged by war. Their ship is attacked and destroyed, and he and Kalina wash ashore. The prince awakens and watches as enemy soldiers take Kalina away. The prince fights his way into the palace and confronts the vizier, who kills Kalina with the dagger of time, unleashing the sands again. The vizier then impales himself with it and makes himself immortal. The prince is also affected, having a whip-like weapon known as the dagger tail embedded in his skin where the sands infect the wound. It's like his whole arm. However, in the confusion following the release of the Sands, the Vizier throws the dagger aside and the Prince manages to steal it before the Sands infect him completely. The Prince falls into the sewers and gets carried to the outskirts of Babylon. As he travels through the city once again to kill the Vizier, he finds that the infection caused by the Sands of Time is affecting his mind, giving rise to his alter ego called the Dark Prince, manifested by a voice within. The Dark Prince is a cold, cruel, arrogant, and sarcastic uh, individual. He attempts to convince the Prince that he should strive to only serve himself, using his vengeance as a catalyst for his other emotions. On many occasions, the Dark Prince seizes control of the Prince's body, and the Prince is fully transformed into a hybrid sand monster with abilities that allow the Prince to pass otherwise insurmountable obstacles. The Prince makes efforts to keep his transformation a secret to everyone, most evidence when he is forced to flee into the sewers when he begins to transform shortly after people witness his victory over the hulking Klampa, hard to say that word, Klampa, a general of the vizier at the arena where they're imprisoned. I'm pretty sure the Klampa, I watched some video of this, he's like just a giant half-naked monster who's too dummy thick for that game. I don't know, man. I kind of, re I kind of remember that, yeah. He's like yeah, a Klomp's yeah. older cousin. Right, exactly. And I Klampa, I mean, come on. Uh, later, the prince encounters Farah, who is surprised that the prince knows her name. Despite this, the pair uh, begin to grow an entirely new romance together. But it does not hold easily when the Dark Prince's influence causes the prince to act aggressively and unreasonably, leading Farah to question his character. After Farah sets out to rescue women at a brothel, for some reason, and the prince briefly parts to defeat Mahasti, another trusted general of the vizier, Farah ends up discovering the prince transformed into the Dark Prince not long after he kills Mahasti and her distrust of him can, comes to a head. She tries to stay away from him, and the prince continues into the city alone. Realizing the negative impact the Dark Prince's corruption is having on his relationship with Farah, the prince resolves to change his attitude and begin to ignore the Dark Prince. He resolves to fight against the suffering of his people, which the Dark Prince has always spoken against. With the occasional help of the Dark Prince's power, the prince gets to the royal workshop and uses a statue of his father to smash a way out for the people trapped in the fire including the old man in Warrior Within, who now expresses hope that the prince can save his empire after initially doubting his ability to do so. The prince then chases and defeats two more of the vizier's generals, armed with a sword and an axe, with Farah returning in the nick of time to finish off one general. They are then cornered by the vizier's sand army, but are saved by the rescued citizens of Babylon, mobilizing as an unexpected army, arriving to repay the prince for saving them. They cut an opening through the enemy forces to help the two heroes escape. 
They eventually reunite at the palace entrance, where the prince apologizes to Farah for his past arrogance and reckless attitude under the Dark Prince's influence. The prince then repairs an elevator to bring the two into the palace's hanging gardens. Deeper into the gardens, the vizier captures Farah and casts the prince into an ancient well, where the long, silent Dark Prince emerges once again and tries to take permanent control. The prince desperately tries to resist the power, driving slowly deeper into the well looking for an escape, but he slowly weakens. At the bottom of the well, the prince stumbles upon the dead body of his father, Sharaman. He mourns for him, picking up his father's sword and accepting the consequences of what he has done to finally suppress the Dark Prince's ability to control his body. With a new resolve to set things right, the prince fights his way underground and back into the palace halls, before ascending its massive tower to finally face the vizier and free Farah. At the top of the palace's tower, the prince confronts and kills the vizier with the Dagger of Time. The sands are released from the vizier and his soldiers who, who die slowly. Seeing this, the people of Babylon rejoice. The sands take the shape of Kalina, who curses the prince's infection, sorry, who cures the prince's infection and destroys the Dagger of Time. She tells that this world wasn't meant for her, but there will be other worlds where she will find her place. She tells the prince that he's free and his journey is at an end and disappears. As the prince finds Sharaman's crown, the Dark Prince takes it and tells him whatever the prince owns will be rightfully his and lures the prince into his mind, where the two struggle until the prince abandons his shadow with the help of Farah's voice. The game ends with Farah asking how the prince knows her name, and the prince answers by beginning to retell a story about his first experience with the Sands of Time in The Prince of Persia, Sands of Time 2003. So, whoof, that's a lot, but... These games uh, are just a giant circle. It is a giant circle. Time's really? a flat circle. <laughs> I think it's a cool. Um, I think I think it's a pretty strong story, though. I mean, mm-hmm. just like the, the the duality between the, the prince and the dark prince, even though it is the edgier sense of himself, um, maybe. And people that that do kind of follow the plot of this kind of say that it's cool that um, this game takes the elements of the sands of time and it takes the warrior within elements of like the edgier prince and kind of combines it into the two. And I I always thought the design of the dark prince was pretty cool, even for two thousand five standards. Mm-hmm. Like how, the, the sands like cracking through his black skin. Yeah, and what's cool is that you you uh, essentially kind of go into a berserk mode where you do more damage and you have like these these like chain whips, kind of like a Belmont, and you have these chain whips that do a lot of damage and kind of change the way that combat is done. Um, however, when you're in the Dark Prince mode, you do lose your health, so it's kind of like a risk reward situation. Um, so yeah, I mean, looking at all of these, you know, I think the 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 Two Thrones it does have in my opinion has the strongest plot um just because it has this duality between the prince and his negative alter ego and his new relationship with farah who is again a reoccurring character here but yeah it does sound like a pretty cool story even though i've not completed the game yeah i i was just kind of lost in thought there because i was thinking the best way i could kind of culminate the three different stories in a way is your first one's sort of the loss of innocence Mm mm-hmm the second one is him running from his guilt, and the third one is just him is accepting of his life, essentially. Yeah, and I was, you know, even before we started this podcast, one of the major goals we try to do is themes, but I really like that analogy that you came up with is that, can you say that one more time? <clears throat> yeah, let me, <clears throat> the first one is the loss of the <laughs> prince's innocence. <laughs> All right, I can't, I can't maintain a straight face, but yes, the first one is the loss of his innocence, where he is tricked into unleashing and giving an evil person the power. The second one is him running from the guilt and consequences of his actions, even though he did right the wrongs in the end. And the third one is him coming to terms with his his actions and basically being able to live his life again. So this is largely just kind of a retelling, in a way, of the hero's journey in a lot yeah, of ways. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Isn't everything... And again, that's a huge part of what inspired this series is the, you know, 101, 1,001 Nights, sorry, um, and which really involves a lot of those heroic sort of tales. Um, so when you look at it as a three-piece rather than the four-piece with the odd addition of Forgotten Sands, the weird uncle that comes to the barbecue, um, I think as, as just a trilogy, I think the games are stronger without the fourth one. What do you think? I agree wholeheartedly. If the fourth one made more sense with everything else, but... Because that's why I brought that up right after it, because all three of these games are basically just like him dealing with the consequences of that one mistake he made in the first game. I guess he was tricked into breaking the sands out, but like, you know, like that one mistake has just led him down this entire path. Right. And largely on this show, we, we talk about the characters in depth, but 
I would really only say the two major characters that kind of keep coming back are the prince and Farah. Yeah, Ben uh, Kingsley. And Ben Kingsley, yes, of course. And I think the prince is um, overall just my reflections on him is he's a he's a pretty good character. Um, you know, there's nothing super standoutish about him. You know, he like you said, he does kind of go through these trials and tribulations, and eventually does come out on top, but. In the larger lexicon of amazing game characters, I don't think he's super high up on that list. I don't want to say he's generic. I don't want to say that, but he's not. There's nothing that really impacts me from him. I don't know. I mean, he is literally a nameless protagonist. That is true, and I think that's half the battle. Is if you're just called the prince and you're not singing about you know doves crying, um, what do you got? Or purple rain. Or purple rain. You know, never wanted to cause you any sorrow, but inevitably he does. Um, which includes us watching the movie. Um, so one thing I think is unique about at least the first game, I don't believe there was much uh, first-person narration in the other two, but the first game is actually narrated by the prince, wow, which I think is really interesting for an immersive way because he is basically telling you the, his story. Mm-hmm. So when you hit a save point and you save, he asks if you would like him to pick up the story from here next time. When he die, when you actually die and like run out of sand to rewind, he'll go. Oh wait, no, no, that's not how it happened. It just, it just kind of adds a certain amount of immersion and, and enjoyment into the game. For sure, and we should. I think we should, since we haven't talked about it yet, we should probably talk about the mechanic of the time rewind. Um, so just like with Max Payne, which in- introduced like bullet time, which is the slowdown when you're in in, in gun combat. These games introduce the notion of backwards time travel because of the sands of time it allows the prince in certain situations to rewind very briefly um to redo a jump or redo combat and stuff like that and i think that's really the largest enduring legacy of these games is how cool of a mechanic that was even to this day especially on a platformer because some of those jumps and like maneuvers were kind of tough mm-hmm. um and it and it was a finite resource, I believe, in all the games, except for the 2008 reboot, where it was infinite. Like, you'd have to kill enemies to gain sand, essentially. Yep. And then you, you could only do it so many times. So it wasn't like this automatic get-out-of-jail-free card, but it was something that, I don't know, it just it helped move the plot along if you were kind of... Well, not the plot along, but it helped move the, the game along. If you are kind of stuck in a tough point, you could keep trying if you were failing at it. And, like, it helps you as the player re-strategize and kind of figure out what the best thing to do is another another like thing that segues into is another thing that helps with immersion in this game is there's not really there's a couple of pop-ups for like what buttons to hit but for the most part when there's a ledge to grab it doesn't give you any heads up or any prompt so it gives you some like shadows to kind of allude to what where you're supposed to go and those sands kind of help you just kind of poke and prod and experiment about where your, your environment without having to constantly restart the game or restart your save point. Right. I think these games are friendly, but also not because if you're, because obviously having the, the rewind mechanic is really handy for difficult situations. But like Jeremy said, like they don't give you a lot of handholds to pun intended. Um, they kind of make you try trial and error. They make you kind of try things out. If it doesn't work, rewind, try it again. Um, and I think about a lot of games that have this sort of platforming, and I've been really disappointed by a lot of games where it's so obvious what you're supposed to do. Like, you have to find the yellow piece of wood and climb up that. Like, you're trying to explore an area, and there's not a lot of... Oh, there is. Sorry, there is too much um, obviousness with it. And I really like when games give you the opportunity of like, here's an area, figure it out. And I think that's what's so cool about these games is, yeah, there's some times where it is pretty linear, but there's other times where you have to kind of take a second to think about how am I going to solve this puzzle? I am having a really hard time of thinking any other games that may have been inspired by the rewinding mechanic. Obviously, there's tons of games with the slow motion mechanic from Max Payne. But I'm, I can, don't think I can think of any other games that really let you rewind time backwards. Um, the Forza racing games. Oh. Yeah, if you ever if you have a really bad crash or take a turn really bad, you can rewind. I think oh, it's like cool. it's it's. I, I don't think it's so much of a a plot or gameplay mechanic in modern games as much as it is just an add on if you screw up. It's not like related to plot or it's not in, in embedded in the game itself. It's just sort of like a try this kind of thing 
So yeah, overall, I, I can't really think of a ton of games beyond you know Forza and maybe a few others that have the time manipulation that would be central to the plot or the gameplay. Um, I think these were really the the focus. It was really just like the largest focus of these games and what makes it so legendary in its own right is how important that mechanic was to the game. So yeah, I, so I think- Do you it, think that without the time manipulation, this would just be kind of a mediocre platformer? Cause that's kind yeah. of what I think. Yeah, I was thinking that I was watching some of the videos, the gameplay videos, is that, you know, if there wasn't this time mechanic, it would be just, it would be a decent game. But I think just the fact that it allows you to um, parkour, essentially, and then... the Yeah, the Warrior Within really expanded the parkour and adding that into combat, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. But and they leaned really heavily into that. I mean, that was like the mainstay. And I think, I don't want to say that's one of the reasons why the series kind of petered out, but because that mechanic is really solid. It's just that we'll talk about in a, in a few minutes here why this series kind of crumbled. Um, but unless you've got any other things to say about the mechanics or anything, we can kind of move on. Nah, put a nail in the coffin. Put, put some sand in that coffin. All right, so let's talk about kind of the demise of this series. So this series, of course, was developed um, by Ubisoft and it was very successful early on. Um, I believe the figures for sales for the original series, the trilogy, were around 20 million, which sounds like a lot, but also doesn't sound like a lot compared to a lot of other series. And um, what they did around the time of Two Thrones is they developed this new IP um, kind of based on the Sands of Time. And in this kind of developmental project, they had it where you would be an assassin protecting the Prince of Persia. And this development project, this demo, eventually became what we now know as Assassin's Creed. And if you know anything about video games nowadays, it's that Assassin's Creed is um, probably one of the most popular gaming series. It's probably top five, top ten in sales. I mean, you can't go anywhere without seeing some sort of Assassin's Creed game. It's largely become serialized every year where there's a new game every year um I'm, i mean again this is not really a assassin's creed episode but maybe we can talk about those in the future but um assassin's creed they didn't really expect it to explode as much as it did but the first assassin's creed game and especially the second one really kind of blew expectations out of the water and it became a hugely successful franchise um i want to say um the Assassin's Creed game, I was watching a video and someone said, I can't verify this off the top of my head, but someone had said that um, while Prince of Persia sold 20 million copies, the Assassin's Creed games to this point has sold over 100 million copies, which is pretty outstanding. Um, and so essentially what happened to the Prince of Persia is that their own little brother uh, kind of took them out of the picture, which I think is unfortunate because you can really see the parallels between this game and the early Assassin's Creed game, especially the idea of movement, platforming, um, not so much stealth because Prince of Persia doesn't use a lot of stealth. I mean, it's there, but it's not huge, um, but really the platforming and um, those aspects. Uh, so yeah, it really was Ubisoft kind of doing it to themselves that kind of tanked this franchise. They did try to kind of keep it lingering, especially with the movie that we'll talk about soon and the Forgotten Sands trying to kind of pump life back into this franchise. But by that time, um, I want to say uh, Assassin's Creed 2 and Brotherhood came out, and those are like huge, huge games for the series. Um, and Assassin's Creed is still going strong. And I think one of the reasons why we were kind of cued into this series, Prince of Persia, was that they're planning to release Prince of Persia Sands of Time HD remake. It was supposed to come out already, but they've delayed it and delayed it and delayed it. And I read just, I think, two or three days ago that they're actually delaying it further. I think it's in kind of a really rough spot. Do so, they work for us? Is that why it's getting delayed so much? Do they work for you and me? Yeah. Do they work for us? Is that <laughs> why it's getting pushed back so much? Yeah, that, that is us in the last... Yeah, we, we apologize for the, the lapse here. But hey, we're taking our time. We like delivering beautiful, wonderful, well-researched content to you beautiful people out there. But yes, it was probably developed by us. Maybe we could develop it. Maybe they should they should hit us up and we can tell them what to do and what not to do. It involves a lot more Godsmack, I'll tell you that. It definitely does. Maybe we could use the reboot of um, Prince of Persia Saints of Time to bring back Creed. I think it's time for Creed again. If fan Creed? Yes. I think if there's a resurgence of new metal, which is going on right now, 
you know, bands like Corn are still going strong, Disturbed still going strong, Godsmack is probably playing at a state fair in Delaware <laughs> right now. I think if there's any time to bring back Creed with arms wide open, we can do it with this HD remake. So Ubisoft, if you're listening to this, call me, call Scott Stapp, and we'll get something rolling here. You know, it, it, I think it could work out really well. I don't think anyone from Ubisoft is listening, but I hope so. Maybe I'll if, maybe I'll spam there. Everyone that listens can just send this podcast to two other people that listen. I mean, that'd be half the battle. By, so by next week we'll have the entire world listening, and then, <laughs> and then Ubisoft will have to listen. And then Scott Stapp will become our first Patreon subscriber. Oh Lord, this is what we do when we have a two-month break. We just go insane. <laughs> All right, let's. Um, I think to you got anything else to say about the games in particular? Let's let's do a brief recap of our <clears throat> feelings about these games, and then we'll talk about the beautiful movie with Jake Gyllenhaal and Ben Kingsley. Um, I absolutely loved them. I played a ton. I probably played the warrior within for probably a solid six months i know i played the game at least three times in a row oh wow that's that's no I, I enjoy like i was so taken back by just like the bouncing around you could do in the combat and and uh, like i played a ton of it um so i'm actually a pretty big fan would you would this series be ranked like would this be like in your top 10 top 20 top 30 um, I would think I, I, I definitely fell out of love with it a little bit just because it's been such a long time and like going back, it is kind of a harder one to get back into because it is still some janky in there. But yeah, if you'd have asked me when I was like, I don't know, 23, yeah, this would still be one of my top, my top. I've played so many more games since then. I think it's knocked down a peg, but so it's a, it's a Jeremy teenager top 10. Yeah. A okay. JTT TT. J-T-T-T-T. Okay. Yep. Yeah, I mean, this series, again, it's never one of my favorite games, but I do have a lot of respect for it. I think it is really um, a really good segue between the games of the past, like the games of the 90s, stuff like Tomb Raider, and stuff that is modern platformers like Uncharted. I think this is like the perfect go-between, the perfect link between stuff like Tomb Raider and stuff like Uncharted, which are you know amazing games in themselves, and maybe we'll do Uncharted someday in the future. But I think a lot of the influence of modern platformers can take a lot from um, games like Prince of Persia. And hopefully, um, at some point, they kind of rehash this franchise. Hopefully, the the HD remake, whenever it does come out, uh, sells pretty well. I'd really, I I'm never going to be a person that doesn't want a franchise to succeed right i mean even if it's not my favorite franchise i want this this series to kind of continue and because largely like i said before this there's not a lot of games that have this huge emphasis on middle eastern mythology and lore and stuff like that and i think that was so cool and gripping about this series is how it it is like playing one of those um arabian Nights stories it is kind of like playing aladdin which i think a lot of people like um so hopefully in the future um they release more games for it, and they kind of take a chip from uh, tip, take a chip away from the Assassin's Creed train. And I think people are kind of ready for that. I mean, I'm not going to ever diss the Assassin's Creed games, but I think they're they're kind of time for kind of a pause on some of those games because they're all good. But I think it's time to kind of give Ubisoft kind of a, a let the, let the subs come in for a second. So that is my team. Call the B team, and hopefully it could become another A team player in the future. But that is my general reflection on the series. Are we ready to talk about the beautiful movie? Yes, I've, I, that's the only reason I showed up today, because I wanted to talk about the movie. Perfect. All right, so let's talk about the movie here. Um, I didn't pull up like who directed it. I think it was Jerry Bruckheimer. Sorry about this. Let me just pull up Prince of Persia. And it's called Sands of Time, the film, but it's not really directly related to... Um, the actual game itself it has its own plot um but it's very adjacent to the plot minus some right it's directed by mike newell but it was produced by jerry bruckheimer who's a pretty well-known action producer um and when we started watching this we watched this together i would say like a month or so ago and i pulled out my notebook to take notes on this and jeremy said are you really taking notes? And I wrote that down. <laughs> Here's my the other. First, the first note was, are you really taking notes? <laughs> my Well, sorry, that was my second note. Oh. My first note was that it's papyrus font in the openings. 
Um, I also wrote down uh, white ass Persian boy speaking English. Um, beautiful set pieces and design. Um, very theme parky, and there's a lot of super fast cuts. Uh, poison robe? Question mark. Uh, cool effect, even though it looked bad. <laughs> <laughs> that describes a good chunk of the movie. Cool effects, even though they look bad. I think that's in reference to when he actually activates the dagger. Yes. Cool effect, terrible. even though it looks. Uh, ostrich racing, although I like the Sheik who is played by the guy who plays Dr. Octopus. His name eludes me. Yeah. Um, uh, Roundy's brand Faramir, <laughs> which I think is one of his brothers yes. uh, in the movie. And I think the last note I had is just call him Dustin already. <laughs> because in the new, in the movie, for whatever reason, they don't call him Prince. They call him Darstan. Dustan. 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 Yeah. Just call him Dustin. So yeah, we're like, Hey, we're just calling him Dustin now. Um, and the plot of... Can you explain the plot? Can you try? Uh, there's nothing in front of me. This is all from memory. Okay. So it's very similar. The The prince was a pauper boy who did a nice thing, and the king brought him into his family. And adopted him. Adopted him. They besiege a city very similarly to this one, um, where it's alluded... Like, they were smuggling weapons, blah, 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 whatever. They were, they're uh, thinking but, that they were smuggling weapons. Yes, but we don't know that right away. So they besiege the city. The they the prince and his ragamuffin squad sneak in, and I don't remember how he gets the dagger. I think they just like catch someone trying to get the dagger to safety. Yeah, and he gets the dagger, and then. Ben Kingsley gives his brother, like, behind the scenes, gives the prince's brother a robe that, like, has, like, some caustic powder in it that kills the king. He gets framed. He runs away. Long story long, it's basically all some plot for Ben Kingsley to get the dagger and, like, go back in time to before when they were kids so he could not save the king from a lion. So that he, Ben Kingsley, could be king instead. Right, because Ben Kingsley is the king's brother. Yes. Mm-hmm. I think that pretty much sums it up. And then there's a very similar, like, um, love story that is in the first Sands of Time where, like, they start out not liking each other. They kind of like each other. Oh, she lies. Like, it was just a trick to get the dagger, but now he, li- like... But now after he got the dagger back, she likes him 10% more than she did before. And they slowly, like, end up liking each other. But it, it's bad. You know, with with uh, video game movies, you don't really expect a lot. And I kind of went into this not expecting a lot. I wanted to make fun of it a lot. But there are certain scenes where I'm like, oh, that's pretty cool. That looks cool. And then I'm like, oh, this looks like trash. Like, it, it's not a movie that I could spend my entire time just ripping on. Like, there are some decent things in it. Um, but it is, it's just a, it's just a fun popcorn movie. Assassin snakes. Assassin snakes. Um, the budget of it, I'm looking at the, the stats here. Um, it was actually a Disney movie, which is interesting, but so technically he's a canonically a prince. The budget was between 150 and $200 million and it made a box office of 336. Uh, a lot of that I believe came from foreign markets. So Yes, it made it made more money than it cost. It came from Persia. They, <laughs> it came they, from... they sent it back in time to yeah. Persia. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It was fine. Like, is it the worst video game movie? Absolutely not. It is not Mortal Kombat Annihilation. Um, take that back. But it's not Sonic the Hedgehog. You know, it's it's fine. I I know that after the fact, Jake Gyllenhaal, who plays Dustin, Dustin, sorry, <laughs> the Prince. Uh, he he said, "I'm not taking. I'm going to be really careful about the roles I select in the future." <laughs> so yeah, it's fine. Like if you get a chance to watch it and you're just kind of bored, and, you see, Jeremy's like, <laughs> let's just say, if you're a fan of the series and you have nothing else to do, you're in prison. It's the only thing on TNT, three fifteen in the afternoon on a Thursday. Watch it. Yeah, I would say if you've already watched all 90 day fiance and you still need something that's about at that level i would watch watch every godsmack music video watch every creed music video do do anything else and then watch prince of persia's sands of time (laughs) um maybe i think maybe for our um you know our season two finale maybe we should rank video game movies that could be our top 10 we would have to hang out for like a week and watch video game movies (sighs) 
or we could do it. Yeah. I mean, I'm, what, how is that different from any other time we hang out though? Good it just, point. It just involves a lot more beer, I think. Um, anyway, I think that really wraps up our conversation about Prince of Persia. Overall, like I said, um, really cool franchise. Hope we get some new life in the next couple of years. Um, Jeremy, do you want to conclude a little bit more about it? Uh, I would just say if you haven't had a chance to play it, I know it's available on um, Steam PC. It's, it is a good game. It's, it tells a pretty fun story with some really cool mechanics. Um, it opens up, I would say opens you up to maybe some things you haven't seen before in, in a lot of video games. Yeah, and if you're looking for the inspirations for a lot of modern platformers, like I said, definitely a good thing to check out. So with that being said, ladies and gentlemen, we appreciate you guys kind of giving us our time to kind of get this all rolling. Um, again, the, this, this springtime has been kind of busy for both of us. But now that I'm off teaching, this is going to become a priority for us. We appreciate all of you that have been listening um, over the last year. We really love doing this. It does obviously take a long time. Um, but we're happy to be back for season two. And Jeremy, do you want to kind of give an, a, a little hint hint at what we might be doing next? Foos bro da. Foos bro da. So yes, we're doing a big one next. So I'm going to be on vacation um, for most of June, but then in July we're going to be coming out with a little uh, little skooma action, I guess you could say. So that being said, ladies and gentlemen, I appreciate for you guys uh, giving us a listen. Uh, share share us with your friends. Share us with anybody that loves dumb humor and video games. Um, if you don't like us, share us with your enemies. Share us with your enemies. That's perfect. So that being said, I... We'll see you guys next time in about a month or so. Um, Thanks for listening. And uh, Jeremy, send us out with something cute. Sands of time, more like sands of rhyme. Hey-oh. Have a good night, guys. See you guys later.